Hi, and welcome to Fido, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. It's time for the third installment of our King Arthur series. So far, we've seen his humble beginnings and coronation, as well as the founding of the Order of the Round Table. But every good king needs a powerful sword. This week, we're talking about what I'm going to say is probably the most famous weapon in all of literature. The Sword of King Arthur, Excalibur. I spoke briefly about Excalibur in the first King Arthur episode, but this time we'll dig a little deeper. I'll say this much before we get into it, though. When I was younger, Excalibur was one of the more frequent objects of my imagination, when I was swinging any random stick I found. Next to my house, we had a field that had grown up with a weed that grew to about four or five feet in height, and then died leaving a reasonably sturdy dried stalk. That field was a ready supply of swords throughout the fall, winter, and spring, and many of them were, in fact, Excalibur. We'll talk about this legendary blade after the story. And now, as retold by Beatrice Clay in Stories from Lamort d'Arthur and the Mabinosian, The Finding of Excalibur. Now, when Arthur was first made king, as young knights will, he courted peril for its own sake, and often would he ride unattended by lonely forest ways, seeking the adventure that chance might send him. All unmindful was he of the ruin to his realm if mischief befell him, and even his trusty counsellors, though they grieved that he should thus imperil him, yet could not but love him the more for his hardihood. So on a day he rode through the forest perilous where dwelt the Lady Anur, a sorceress of great might, who used her magic powers but for the furtherance of her own desires. And as she looked from a turret window, she descried King Arthur come riding down a forest glade, and the sunbeams falling upon him made one glory of his armor and of his yellow hair. Then as Anur gazed upon the king, her heart grew hot within her, and she resolved that, come what might, she would have him for her own to dwell with her always and fulfill all her behests. And so she bade lower the drawbridge and raise the portcullis, and sallying forth, accompanied by her maidens, she gave King Arthur courteous salutation, and prayed him that he would rest within her castle that day, for that she had a petition to make to him. And Arthur, doubting nothing of her good faith, suffered himself to be led within. Then was a great feast spread, and Anur caused the king to be seated in a chair of state at her right hand, while squires and pages served him on bended knee. So when they had feasted, the king turned to the Lady Anur, and said courteously, Lady, somewhat ye said of a request that ye would make. If there be aught in which I may pleasure you, I pray you let me know it, and I will serve you as knightly as I may. In truth, said the lady, there is that which I would fain entreat of you, most noble knight. Yet suffer, I beseech you, that first I may show you somewhat of my castle and my estate, and then I will crave a boon of your chivalry. 
Then the sorceress led King Arthur from room to room of her castle, and ever each displayed greater store of beauty than the last. In some the walls were hung with rich tapestries, in others they gleamed with precious stones, and the king marveled what might be the petition of one that was mistress of such wealth. Lastly, Anur brought the king out upon the battlements, and as he gazed around him, he saw that, since he had entered the castle, there had sprung up about it triple walls of defense that shut out wholly the forest from view. Then turned he to Anur, and gravely he said, Lady, greatly I marvel in what a simple knight may pleasure one that is mistress of so wondrous a castle, as ye have shown me here. Yet, if there be aught in which I may render you knightly service, rightly glad would I hear it now, for I must forth upon my way to render service to those whose knight I am sworn. Nay, now, King Arthur, answered the sorceress mockingly, ye may not think to deceive me, for well I know you, and that all Britain bows to your behest. The more reason, then, that I should ride forth to right wrongs and succor them that— of their loyalty, render true obedience to their lord. Ye speak as a fool, said the sorceress. Why should one that may command be at the beck and call of every hind and slave within his realm? Nay, rest thee here with me, and I will make thee ruler of a richer land than Britain, and give thee to satisfy thy every desire. Lady, said the knight sternly, I will hear and judge of your petition at this time and then will I forth upon my way. Nay, said Anur, there needs not this harshness. I did but speak for thine advantage. Only vow thee to my service, and there is naught that thou canst desire that thou shalt not possess. Thou shalt be lord of this fair castle, and of the mighty powers that obey me. Why waste thy youth in hardship, and in the service of such as shall render thee little enough again? Thereupon, without ever a word, the king turned him about and made for the turret stair by which he had ascended, but nowhere could he find it. Then said the sorceress, mocking him, Fair sir, how think ye to escape without my good will? See ye not the walls that guard my stronghold? And think ye that I have not servants enow to do my bidding? She clapped her hands, and forthwith there appeared a company of squires who, at her command, seized the king and bore him away to a strong chamber where they locked him in. And so the king abode that night, the prisoner of that evil sorceress, with little hope that day, when it dawned, should bring him better cheer. Yet lost he not courage, but kept watch and vigil the night through, lest the powers of evil should assail him unawares. And with the early morning light, Anur came to visit him. More stately she seemed than the night before, more tall and more terrible, and her dress was one blaze of flashing gems, so that scarce could the eye look upon her. As a queen might address a vassal, so greeted she the king, and as condescending to one of low estate, and asked how he had fared that night, and the king made answer. I have kept vigil as behooves a knight who, knowing him to be in the midst of danger, would bear himself meetly in any peril that should offer. And the Lady Anur, admiring his knightly courage, desired more earnestly even than before to win him to her will, and she said, 
Sir Arthur, I know well your courage and knightly fame, and greatly do I desire to keep you with me. Stay with me, and I promise you that ye shall bear sway over a wider realm than any that ever ye heard of, and I, even I, its mistress, will be at your command. And what lose ye if ye accept my offer? Little enough, I ween, for never think that ye shall win the world from evil and men to loyalty and truth. Then answered the king in anger, Full well I see that thou art in league with evil, and that thou but seekest to turn me from my purpose. I defy thee, foul sorceress. Do thy worst. Though thou slay me, thou shalt never sway me to thy will. And therewith the king raised his cross-hilted sword before her. Then the lady quailed at that sight. Her heart was filled with hate, but she said, Go your way, proud king of a petty realm. Rule well your race of miserable mortals. Since more it pleasures you than to bear sway over the powers of the air, I keep you not against your will. With these words she passed from the chamber, and the king heard her give command to her squires to set him without her gates, give him his horse, and suffer him to go on his way. And so it came to pass that the king found himself once more at large, and marveled to have won so lightly to liberty. Yet he knew not the depths of treachery in the heart of Anur, for when she found she might not prevail with the king, she bethought her how, by mortal means, she might bring the king to dishonor and death. And so, by her magic art, she caused the king to follow a path that brought him to a fountain, whereby a knight had his tent, and, for love of adventure, held the way against all comers. Now this knight was Sir Pellinore, and at that time he had not his equal for strength and knightly skill, nor had any been found that might stand against him. So, as the king drew nigh, Pellinore cried, Stay, knight, for none passes this way except he joust with me. That is no good custom, said the king. It were well that ye followed it no more. It is my custom, and I will follow it still, answered Pellinore. If ye like it not, amend it if ye may. I will do my endeavor, said Arthur, but, as ye see, I have no spear. Nay, I seek not to have you at advantage, replied Pellinore, and bade his squire give Arthur a spear. Then they dressed their shields, laid their lances in rest, and rushed upon each other. Now the king was wearied by his knight's vigil, and the strength of Pellinore was as the strength of three men, so at the first encounter Arthur was unhorsed. Then said he, I have lost the honor on horseback, but now I will encounter thee with my sword and on foot. I too will alight, said Pellinore. Small honor to me were it if I slew thee on foot." I being horsed the while. So they encountered each other on foot, and so fiercely they fought that they hewed off great pieces of each other's armor, and the ground was dyed with their blood. But at the last Arthur's sword broke off short at the hilt, and so he stood all defenseless before his foe. I have thee now, cried Pellinore. Yield thee as recreant, or I will slay thee. That will I never, said the king, "'Slay me if thou canst.' Then he sprang on Pellinore, caught him by the middle, and flung him to the ground, himself falling with him. And Sir Pellinore marveled, for never before had he encountered so bold and resolute a foe. 
But exerting his great strength, he rolled himself over, and so brought Arthur beneath him. Then had Arthur perished, but at that moment Merlin stood beside him, and when Sir Pellinore would have struck off the king's head, stayed his blow, crying, Pellinore, if thou slayest this knight, thou puttest the whole realm in peril, for this is none other than King Arthur himself. Then was Pellinore filled with dread, and cried, Better make an end of him at once, for if I suffer him to live, what hope have I of his grace, that have dealt with him so sorely? But before Pellinore could strike, Merlin caused a deep sleep to come upon him, and raising Arthur from the ground, he staunched his wounds and recovered him of his swoon. But when the king came to himself, he saw his foe lie, still as in death, on the ground beside him, and he was grieved and said, Merlin, what have ye done to this brave knight? Nay, if ye have slain him, I shall grieve my life long, for a good knight he is, bold and a fair fighter, though something wanting in knightly courtesy. He is in better case than ye are, Sir King, who so lightly imperil your person, and thereby your kingdom's welfare, and as ye say, Pellinore is a stout knight, and hereafter shall he serve you well. Have no fear, he shall wake again in three hours, and have suffered naught by the encounter. But for you, it were well that ye came where ye might be tended for your wounds. Nay, replied the king, smiling, I may not return to my court thus weaponless. First will I find means to purvey me of a sword. That is easily done, answered Merlin. Follow me, and I will bring you to where ye shall get you a sword, the wonder of the world. So, though his wounds pained him sore, the king followed Merlin by many a forest path and glade, until they came upon a mere, bosomed deep in the forest. And as he looked thereon, the king beheld an arm, clothed in white samite, shoot above the surface of the lake, and in the hand was a fair sword, that gleamed in the level rays of the setting sun. "'This is a great marvel,' said the king. "'What may it mean?' And Merlin made an answer. Deep is this mere, so deep indeed that no man may fathom it, but in its depths, and built upon the roots of the mountains, is the palace of the Lady of the Lake. Powerful is she, with a power that works ever for good, and she shall help thee in thine hour of need. For thee has she wrought yonder sword. Go now and take it. Then was Arthur aware of a little skiff, half hidden among the bulrushes that fringed the lake, and leaping into the boat, without aid of oar, he was wafted out into the middle of the lake, to the place where, out of the water, rose the arm and sword. And leaning from the skiff, he took the sword from the hand, which forthwith vanished, and immediately thereafter the skiff bore him back to land. Arthur drew from its scabbard the mighty sword, wondering the while at the marvel of its workmanship, for the hilt shone with the light of many twinkling gems, diamond and topaz and emerald, and many another whose names none know. And as he looked on the blade, Arthur was aware of mystic writings, on the one side and the other, and calling to Merlin he bade him interpret them. "'Sir,' said Merlin, "'on one side is written, Keep me, and on the other, Throw me away.' Then, said the king, which does it behoove me to do? Keep it, answered Merlin, the time to cast it away is not yet come. This is the good brand Excalibur, or cut steel, and well shall it serve you. But what think ye of the scabbard? 
A fair cover for so good a sword, answered Arthur. Nay, it is more than that, said Merlin, for so long as ye keep it, though ye be wounded never so sore, yet ye shall not bleed to death. And when he heard that, the king marveled the more. Then they journeyed back to Caerleon, where the knights made great joy of the return of their lord, and presently thither came Sir Pellinore, craving pardon of the king, who made but jest of his own misadventure. And afterwards Sir Pellinore became of the table round, a knight vowed, not only to deeds of hardihood, but also to gentleness and courtesy, and faithfully he served the king, fighting ever to maintain justice and put down wrong, and to defend the weak from the oppressor. Let me tell you, this is one of my favorites. I've always loved stories about swords. For some reason, it's swords specifically. I've never had the same interest in other weapon types in stories or games, and the only reason I can really come up with is that no other weapon is really as romanticized as the sword. Excalibur is arguably the most prominent example, but by no means is it the first example we have. There are very powerful, even magical, swords that show up all the way back in ancient Greek mythology and before. Perseus, for example, used a sword called Harp, which is the type of sword, but also seems to be the proper name as well, gifted to him by Zeus to slay Medusa, the Gorgon. So before we get to Excalibur, first let's talk about Anur and Pelennor for a minute. Arthur's story never disappoints. It's got everything. Magic swords, bold deeds, and evil sorceresses looking to seduce our hero with intoxicating power. Anor, at least I think that's the pronunciation, is going to show up again before we're through, I think, but she won't be the last powerful and treacherous lady in Arthur's life. Anor's presence in this story is a great chance to highlight Arthur's virtue and imperviousness to corruption, and I think that's completely the point of her character. As for Pellinor, he's another chance to show Arthur's virtue through single combat. Here we find Arthur to be brave enough to face a much stronger opponent, and he also shows that he has the will to fight, even when he is weaponless and exhausted. Also, Arthur displays the wisdom to accept the counsel of his advisors by listening to Merlin, as well as the humility of playing off his near death at Pellinore's hand and making him one of his knights. Now, if you've seen any Monty Python at all, you've probably seen the sketch from Monty Python and the Holy Grail that explicitly makes fun of this scene. If you haven't, at least check YouTube for King Arthur vs. the Black Knight, and it's ridiculous over-the-top, and hilarious. So, as I've said before, Arthur walks this line between history and legend. It's difficult sometimes to tell where and if those lines blur. Arthur may have been a real person, if less of a king and more of a general in the late Roman period, who fought against the Saxons. Likewise, Excalibur may be based on a real sword, if not the one that Arthur used to actually fight the Saxons in the 5th century. While I was researching swords with magical abilities, 
I found a parallel that some people mention between the Excalibur we know in the later developed stories of Arthur and an actual historical ruler with a sword that is said to possess some interesting qualities. Let's talk about Charles the Great, otherwise known as Charlemagne. His sword was called Joyeuse, which, as you might guess, is a French word meaning joyous. This sword, or at least the sword they claim is Joyeuse, is on display at the Louvre. Though I believe they claim that it has been repaired or reforged, so what you're seeing is very likely not the original sword. Joyeuse is said to shine brighter than the sun, and had the ability to blind the opponents of the wielder. It also changed colors 30 times a day, and it was also said that the person wielding it was immune to poison. Now listen to this. Excalibur's powers include the ability to blind an opponent. And while it's not poison, the scabbard of Excalibur does prevent the wielder from bleeding to death from his wounds. So preservation of life is a pretty similar trait. The theory I happened to cross supposes that Charlemagne's sword from the early 9th century was adopted in the 15th century as a template for Excalibur, but adapted for the late medieval audience that Thomas Mallory, the author of Le Mort d'Arthur, was hoping to draw in. It makes sense if you think about it. Authors are still updating old stories for modern audiences today, so it's safe to assume, I think. Now, the Lady of the Lake. I didn't spend too much time looking into her origins, since this episode is more about Excalibur, but what I did find were some possible links to Celtic goddesses or lake fairies. The names I found were Welsh, so let's just leave it at that for now. Welsh, as a friend of mine once said, might be a language, or it might be some kind of prank on the rest of the world that only the Welsh are in on. I'm super impressed by anyone who can speak it. The last thing I wanted to mention about Excalibur has to do with the inscriptions. One side saying, take me up, and one side cast me away, or some similar phrase depending on the translation. I love this part of the story. I mentioned the romantic nature of the sword earlier, and this is a great example. It's a kind of poetic war within the sword's wielder, between using the weapon and seeking not to use the weapon. To me, it speaks of the wisdom required of a leader, which is knowing whether it's time to fight or time to seek peace. And further, handling the delicate fight for peace. I think I'll leave it there, because if I'm not careful, it's going to get very deep in here very quickly. Now, if you're having fun listening to Fado, you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. I'm on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Don't forget to share and leave a review if you like what you're hearing. And if you leave me comments or questions, I might even be able to read them on the air. You can also keep up and follow me on Facebook as well as Instagram. I'm at Fado Podcast. If you want to support me more directly, you can become a patron. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There will be behind-the-scenes content, early access to upcoming episodes, and also merch. I have stickers already, and if you become a patron, I can guarantee you one in your membership letter. That's right. I'll send you a personal handwritten note in the mail with a sticker. 
Also, if you join, you'll get a mention here on the show. So that brings us to the end of episode 16. I'm sure there's plenty more to say about Arthur and his legendary sword, but I'll leave some of that for discussion. Look for episode 17 on September 13th. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time.